Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking all about maps with science journalist Betsy Mason. As a freelance writer and editor, she specializes in science and cartography and is co-author with Greg Miller of All Over the Map, an illustrated book about maps and cartography for National Geographic and the website Map Dragons. Her work appears in numerous publications, including National Geographic, The New York Times, Nature, Wired, Scientific American, and New Scientist. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Betsy Mason now. Betsy Mason, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, tell us about yourself. Like, where did your interest in cartography and maps first come from? I think I've just always had an affinity for maps. When I was little, I could spend hours poring over road atlases. Um, and you know, before I was became a science journalist, I was a geologist. I, I got a master's degree in geology and had no idea what I was going to do after that. Ended up working for an oil company in Houston for almost two years, which was exactly as miserable as I suspected it might be. Um, and while I was there is when I figured out or I learned that there was this thing called science writing <laughs> and started looking into it. And there's a, a school for it in, um, there's a, you know, there's a number of schools that are specifically to train people in science journalism, but there's one at Santa Cruz that trains people with a science background to become journalists. So I applied and, and went there and switched careers. And I would say I didn't really become obsessed with cartography and maps until I started writing about them. Um, I started a, uh, when I was at Wired Magazine, I was a science editor there. I started a blog about maps with um, with my friend and colleague, Greg Miller, uh, called Map Lab. And it was basically about maps, about making maps. The idea was we would learn all about maps and about how to make maps sort of in public and our readers would learn along with us. And it was so much fun. The more I learned, the more I, I loved maps even more. Um, we eventually moved that blog to National Geographic, where it's called um, All Over the Map, and then did a book together um, of the same name. And the research for that book was one of the most fun things I've ever done. It was just a bunch of historical rabbit holes, really interesting people, just you know, following my interests as far as discovering different maps, because we tried to collect maps that are really interesting to look at, but also have an interesting story behind them. And that's part of why writing about maps is so great because it's, you know, this book is basically a book of stories that happen to be about maps. You know, maps is sort of the, the, the framework for them, but they're all different kinds of stories. They're science, they're about people, they're about art, they're about um, history. It was really, really fun to do. Maps, they really do intersect across so many different things, just like data journalism in general. So you can just yeah. get in and out of all these different worlds, right? Yeah, I like to say... Mostly seriously, that everything is maps, particularly the future is maps. I see maps and spatial thinking and representation everywhere now that I now that I think about it more. And maybe it's just that I can find a way to make any conversation about maps. <laughs> if you talk to me long enough, we're going to end up talking about maps. <laughs> Brilliant. And, you know, much of your book um, that you published uh, talks about the history of maps and 
you know, I'm just curious, when did humans first start using maps and why are they important for journalists today and the general public as well? You know, I'm not sure we know exactly when people first started using maps because, you know, I'm sure the first maps were not actually, have not been preserved. Um, but I would guess that probably as soon as we were using any kind of symbolic representation, I'll bet we were mapping things at that point. But I think maps are important in a lot of ways. One of the biggest is probably our understanding of our place in the world, I guess you could say. That might sound obvious, but um, but I do think that having a representation of the world that we can place ourselves in is important. Um, it helps us be less inward thinking, less focused on ourselves and our immediate surroundings. Um, I guess it's about perspective. Uh, and you know, I really noticed this when I first started using Google Maps to navigate um, new places. I noticed that my memory of those places was so much worse than um, my memory of places that I had navigated with paper maps. Um, and I think it's just because, you know, you, Google Maps focuses you on the on the area right around you. It's all about you and where you're going and how you're getting there. And and that's it. With a paper map, you know, you get a much better sense of the, the whole place. Um, you think more about the place and the people in it. I guess I'd say maps are also important as um, ways to record history because they can be so specific to the time and place that they were made and they can reveal so much about the person who made them, you know, their view of the world, what was important to them, um, what they left out, all, all those sorts of things. So they, they can record history in a way that um, I think has these sort of different angles that you don't get other ways. In your book, you also talk a lot about how, you know, our brains are built for maps. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the science behind that? Yeah, I guess, you know, some some of why I feel that way is based on science, but some of it is just based on my experience with maps and, and how I've watched other people interact with maps. I mean, I do think that there's definitely something special about maps that uniquely draws us humans in. Um, so you know, maybe I'll start with with the brain. There are uh, parts of our brain, specific cells that are just for um, navigating uh, space, navigating the world. So there's these things, place cells that fire. There are specific individual neurons that fire when you're in a specific place in the world. Um, there's also grid cells that sort of map out literally a sort of map in your brain that covers a given space and keeps track of where you are relative to all the rest of that space. And if you look at the pattern of neurons firing in, of, of the grid cells firing, it, it maps out a perfectly spaced grid of individual neurons that fire as you move through a space, which I think is just incredibly interesting. We also have things called head direction cells. There are border cells keep discovering all these other specialized cells that help us find our way. But what's really interesting is that our brain seems to map other kinds of space in the same or similar ways. So we also map social space uh, using these kind, this sort of 3D representation of social space in our brain. So by social space, I mean how closely we are related to different people in a group, um, sort of where they are relative to each other in, I guess you could say the power structure. Um, scientists think we also map uh, memories in space and time the same way. 
whatever the reason, I do think that our brains relate to maps differently than to other data visualizations and that we more readily form emotional connections with maps. Um, a little less scientifically, I would say that I think maps are sort of this perfect combination of constraint and creativity. So they're based on a very real framework that's constrained by actual geography, but they leave just enough space for, um, for creativity and artistry that I think kind of that combination just really hits the right spot for, for human brains somehow. Absolutely. Now, you created um, a brilliant visualization for the New York Times published just days before the 2020 U.S. elections, looking at how maps, uh, election maps actually, can really be confusing and even misleading. I just wondered if you could talk us through that because um, it just was super interesting and if there was any other detail um, you wanted to add. Yeah, that um, that was really fun. That was sort of the the um, culmination of, gosh, I would say years of thinking about this topic because I just noticed when I was looking at those red and blue um, election maps, particularly online when they tend to be made with um, what we call monitor red and monitor blue, it's like the, the purest, bluest blue and the reddest red. Uh, to me, in addition to the, the problem that I learned quickly about when I started writing about maps, which is, this problem of uh, mapping things that are have a geographical aspect but are not entirely related to you know area. So in other words, with an election map, we're mapping the number of votes, but we're mapping it on a, a, an amount of space that's unrelated. So you have Utah that's got you know I think fewer than two million people in it takes up this huge amount of space much bigger than say New York which has I don't know ten times as many and so this gives you a really sort of misleading view of uh, of the state of our political landscape I guess you could say particularly the way it is now we've got a situation where rural less populated areas tend to vote Republican and therefore are colored red and concentrated urban centers tend to be more democratic and colored blue. So when you look at the map, it's just a sea of red with you know the sort of rimmed and dotted with blue islands. That gives the impression, um, and this is why I think President Trump loves these maps so much, gives the impression that the vast majority of the country is Republican, which we know is not true. In the 2016 election and in this election, more people voted Democrat than Republican, but that's not the way the map looks. But I also noticed that it seemed to me like the, the red was just sort of, it just stood out a lot more than the blue even coming off the page a little bit, like standing out, like the blue seemed like it would just sort of fall into the background. So I started asking around and reading around and I eventually found um, people who agreed <laughs> with me and, and could explain it. There's a number of these, you know, sort of visual illusions. There's one called irradiation that makes uh, bright objects appear larger than dark objects. And they think this is because of the way that light scatters in the eye. It, um, if you've got more light scattering, it ends up taking up a bigger spot on your retina relative to other things. And so those things look just a little bit bigger. And because red is a brighter color than blue, the red areas 
tend to look bigger. Um, and then there's another one called chromostereopsis, which is exactly what I was talking about, which makes red pop into the foreground and blue recede into the background. And this is something that artists have been taking advantage of for centuries. You know, people have used it, especially in like stained glass um, art. They use the red and the blue to, to give this impression of depth. But on an election map, that's that's not helpful. Um, and so I I just had this in my head for so long and you know, the election was coming up and the maps were coming up more and more. So I finally just thought, you know, I want to pitch this as sort of an argument against election maps. So that's why I ended up at the New York Times opinion section because um, also they're doing so many cool uh, visual things these days, like in particular, a, um, a thing that Alberto Cairo did with them about how people misread hurricane forecast maps. You should look that one up, it's pretty cool. So that's sort of what drew me in that direction. Brilliant. So what was your perception of the election results and how different news organizations used maps on election night and the days after? <laughs> Well, you know, I thought that the, as expected, the cable news stations that were on for hours and days on end with their, you know, magic wall maps, which are, you know, all made with extremely bright reds and blues. And, you know, I could just, I could see the chromostereopsis. I could see, you know, all the problems, um, even though this map was turning out to be a little bit more blue than the previous map is still very misleading about where the country is. And I think that's a particularly problematic right now when we have people who are um, suggesting that the election was rigged and that there actually is more support for President Trump than there is, because it does look like that on the map. Um, now, print news organizations like the New York Times and the Washington Post do a lot better. They have different kinds of maps. They use um, better, uh, you know, more even brightness of red and blue. They they use um, not necessarily, they're not always shading the entire state or county in the color of the winning party. They also do a thing called um, normalization on vote share. So if a county or state is extremely Republican, it'll be a much darker red than if it just barely went Republican. And so that gives you a much better impression of where the country actually stands. And, you know, those newspapers that I mentioned and, and some other publications have got really great cartographers on staff and they're always innovating new ways um, to try to make more accurate representations of the election. But it's a really interesting, really difficult problem. And I'm sure it's also very difficult on election night when there's just so much uncertainty and you don't, you know, as a journalist, you're reporting live and you want to get the facts right. And you have to think about this stuff in advance, you know, and plan in advance, you know. Yeah, there's also something to be said for people's familiarity and understanding of those red and blue election maps. So there is, you know, there is an argument for continuing to use them for that reason, but I think there's probably ways that we could use them that wouldn't be as misleading. Yeah, I mean, I had so many friends overseas really phoning me up and trying to figure out what was happening and they couldn't quite figure it out because some maps online didn't have, you know, the number of electoral votes and, and they were confused by this whole process. So I felt like I was just like reporting live to this very small group of people just because, <laughs> just because we couldn't, you know, some news organizations just didn't 
make it clear when you scrolled over, they didn't show exactly, you know, that it's not, you know, I think Albert, Alberto Cairo and many other people on Twitter have been saying this. It's like people vote, not land. Don't exactly. get confused. So I thought that was just brilliant. I, I saw a lot of that on, on Twitter on election night and, and the days after. It's also, you know, it is it is true that the uh, electoral map. So when you're you're mapping by state and it's representing the electoral college, that sort of um, unevenness is representative of the electoral college system. So it's a more accurate representation of this weird way that we uh, elect a president that isn't a direct popular vote. So it doesn't really matter how Republican. Utah or, you know, Wyoming is, it just matters that they're Republican and all the electoral votes go that way. So in that way, you know, some, it's maybe a more accurate representation of this, um, some might say, unrepresentative system that we have. Right. And that, I can imagine that that's super confusing to people overseas, because it's pretty confusing to people here as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in your opinion, you know, when is a map absolutely essential for a story? Um, you know, can you talk us through your process of, of how, you know, when, when, when do you look at a story and you're like, why didn't they put a map here? Or this map is too much a part of the story? Or I, I think probably more often, I think this, this should not have been a map. <laughs> and that's one of the things that, you know, journalists should do is think about, whether or not a map is necessary. But you know, there's sort of two kinds of maps when it comes to journalism. There's maps that you um, use to display information or an idea, and then there's maps that are used you know, basically with data journalism and GIS analysis to, um, to reveal the story, to, to find the patterns. Um, and so that's obviously, those kinds of maps are integral to the story. Um, an example I like to use is a Pulitzer Prize nominated story by the South Florida Sun Sentinel in 2004. They were mapping out uh, FEMA payments after Hurricane Francis, and they noticed that their, the, the lists that um, FEMA would put out were by county, and there were a lot of claims in Miami-Dade County, which had been mostly spared from the worst of the damage of Hurricane Francis. So they got the, the zip code data to go along with this and mapped it out. And sure enough, those payments did not track the storm at all. And it turned out that there was a lot of fraud going along there. And they wouldn't have been able to see that without mapping the data out. Um, but I think your question was probably more about the other kinds of maps used in journalism, the kind that we use to display uh, information or help make a point. Um, these are usually or oftentimes thematic maps, um, which are maps that show something more than just the physical location of things, the social phenomena or economic phenomena or ideas, things like things that you can't directly see, um, like disease or or votes or wind or poverty, uh, opinion, things like that. And so these kinds of maps can be very persuasive and powerful. Um, throughout history, they've been used to convince people of things that were true and things that weren't true. Um, and maybe it comes back to that connection with maps that I was talking about, but I think people are very prone to believe things that they see on maps. If it's on a map, it just looks and feels more true. So one thing journalists need to keep in mind is that the same data set can be mapped many different ways that will show or convey 
a different message. And that's not to say that journalists should just pick the way to map, to map the data that matches their, the story they're telling. The point is to be, to use maps carefully and responsibly um, and understand that they're not just illustrations to break up the text. And I wonder as a journalist, you know, I, I know you said earlier that you're not necessarily someone who makes a lot of maps, but what are the go-to tools do you think for designing maps? For journalists who just want to start incorporating maps or, you know, maybe just playing around with maps, there's lots of different resources. There's, um, I can recommend two online uh, free courses. One is taught by um, Anthony Robinson at um, Penn State. It's called Maps and the Geospatial Revolution. And you'll basically learn about the basic principles of cartography, um, map design, how to use color, and you'll learn how to make maps using um, the software platform of Esri, which is the, the biggest mapping software company. But they also have a free online account that you can that you can do mapping with if you want to learn. There's also um, we mentioned Alberto Cairo. He teaches a class about data viz for journalists through the Knight Center. And it's about data viz in general, but it uh, it's good about helping you understand how to find and use data. And there is a lot about mapping in there too. So I think that's probably really useful. Um, for making maps, the good news is that there are lots of online platforms that are pretty easy to use. It's becoming much easier to make maps. Bad news is it's still really hard to make good maps. <laughs> that doesn't mean that journalists shouldn't try. It's a really good time to, to be a journalist who wants to make maps because it's more possible than it's ever been. And for journalists who are new to map making, like what's your biggest, what's, what's your one piece of advice for them when they're starting out? Uh, <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I'm always encouraging uh, people to try making maps. And, uh, you know, I've helped organize some workshops for science journalists to learn how to how to make maps. Um, I don't know. I would encourage journalists and people interested in it to to go online and try making a map. It's really easy to find geospatial data now. Lots of governments especially city governments are um, have sort of open data uh, movements, I guess you could call them. And so there's just tons of data about your city, probably online data sets waiting just to be uploaded into Mapbox and turned into a map in a matter of minutes. So you should go online, find some of those data sets, plug them in and see what you find. And just that act, I think, of, of making those maps and making a few decisions will help people understand maps better, even if they don't end up actually making any for their, you know, for their stories or anything like that, they'll be better consumers of maps at the very least. Mm, absolutely. And finally, I just wonder, you know, um, is there a map out there that's made a huge impact on you at all? one that's stuck in your mind that, you know, it was kind of like your favorite map over the years. I tend to like maps that are, uh, you know, both visually interesting and also have an interesting story behind them, um, which is part of why making that book was so fun because that was, that was our, our whole sort of MO for that book. Um, there is a map on the uh, Voyager spacecraft that's, 
some number of billions of, of miles away from Earth right now, hurtling into interstellar space. Uh, and this map was made by an astronomer named Frank Drake, who is known for his association with the SETI Institute, that's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And so he and Carl Sagan were tasked with um, crafting some kind of message to alien life forms to put on actually a previous mission, the, the Pioneer mission. And so they decided that they should include a map of where we are. So Frank Drake had to try to figure out how do I make a map that some alien, intelligent alien life form somewhere will be able to read. So recently there had been a discovery of these kinds of um, dying supernovas called pulsars. And these are um, stars that are rotating um, at different speeds and they have sort of beams of light coming out from them. So they look like they're blinking at a regular pace, but really it's just the, the beam of light going around in a circle. But every single one of them has a unique signature of those lights blinking on and off. And so Drake took a bunch of those, I think, I don't know, a dozen or, or, or 17 or, or, or something and mapped them in relation to where our galaxy is using different lengths of lines. And then along the lines, he wrote the um, spin signature out in binary code and then included on the map a, a diagram of a hydrogen atom so that the aliens could understand that that was the unit of time that he was using. And this had the, the added like super cool benefit of the fact that these stars are slowing down. So the aliens could probably recognize which pulsars we were talking about by the pattern, but they could also see how much it had slowed down. And by that deduce how long ago that message had been sent, how long ago had Frank Drake made that map and, and put it onto the, the Voyager spacecraft. It was in 1977 that that was launched and they'd be able to figure that out. Um, this caused a little bit of a stir at the time because people were like, you're giving the evil aliens a map to find us in the universe. But, you know, Carl Sagan was constantly reassuring people that space is very large. There's almost no chance that aliens are actually going to get this message. Um, I just like thinking about that map sort of flying out into space. And it was such a creative way to map where we are. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> oh, well, that seems to thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Oh, yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed our conversation. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.